we're going to do an overview of both of those today. So find the side on your paper that says 1 Thessalonians, and that's where we're going to start today. Uh, so we'll do an overview of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, again, these are not very lengthy books, but there is uh, a lot of material in those. So we're going to do an introduction to those this week, and then uh, next week we will look into the text of both of those letters. And we may do an additional study today. I'm not sure, depending on all how our, our time goes. I'm going to try to get through uh, our paper here quickly so that we can talk in another area very quickly this morning. But 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is probably the earliest uh, New Testament letter that we have. Uh, it was probably one of Paul's very first uh, letters that he wrote and one of the early New Testament documents. As you see under our data for 1 Thessalonians, our content is 1 Thessalonians is a letter of thanksgiving, encouragement, and exhortation and information for very recent Gentile believers in Christ. Of course, the Apostle Paul is the author of the letter. Uh, the date it was written was around 50 or 51 uh, AD while Paul is in Corinth. Uh, again, it's probably one of the earliest documents in the New Testament, if not the earliest document in the New Testament. Uh, the recipients are those a part of the church in Thessalonica. Uh, they are primarily uh, the majority Gentile converts, even though in Thessalonica there is a Jewish synagogue, so there were Jewish believers, and we'll look at the beginnings in just a moment. Uh, but most of these are probably new converts that Paul had been teaching and had to leave abruptly and has left Timothy with them to continue instructing. And one thing you'll notice in the book of 1 Thessalonians is how often, and 2 Thessalonians, is how much Paul calls to their remembrance what he had already taught them. So just as new believers, or as, you know, when we're coming into our faith, we need to be taught and reminded over and over again of these truths. So Paul calls to their remembrance a lot of the things that he had taught them while he was there with him. Uh, looking at the city of Thessalonica, uh, we go to our trusty map uh, here. Of course, down in our far right-hand corner, there's Jerusalem. Uh, you go up around the province of Asia, that's where Galatia is. And then right across uh, the agency there, you see almost in the middle of your screen, uh, that big area is called Macedonia. And there you see Thessalonica up there. Uh, Thessalonica, uh, the northern Aegean seaport, it was a great seaport city, so there was a lot of commerce in the city. Um, in the time of Paul, it was the chief city of Macedonia. It was built by Cassander in 315 BC. He was the king of Macedonia, uh, who named it after his wife, who was named Thessalonica. So he named it after his. So there's a, there's a good present if you husbands want to get uh, your wives anything. Just buy some land and name it after her. Um, Thessalonica, the wife of the king of Macedonia, was a half-sister to Alexander the Great. So uh, the city here of Thessalonica was a very important city. Uh, it was a very well-to-do city uh, because it was a seaport city. There was a lot of commerce, a lot of traffic that was there. So, uh, of course, with the, the diversity in the city brought a lot of uh, issues as well. It was a very uh, pagan-oriented city. Uh, in fact, Paul mentions here to the Thessalonians how they turned to God from idols to serve the living God. So they came out of pagan religions. The story of the beginning of the church 
in Thessalonica is an interesting story. You can read about that story or the beginnings of the gospel going to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Uh, In Acts chapter 15, or in Acts chapter 16, Paul is in Philippi. And we know the story of Philippi. Uh, Paul was in uh, prison there, and the prison was shaken, and uh, we are familiar with the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Well, after the conversion of the Philippian jailer, uh, Paul was urged to get out of the city. So Paul leaves Philippi at the end of Acts chapter 16, and he comes to Thessalonica. Uh, when he gets to Thessalonica, you see on, on our paper there, he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. Again, there was a synagogue there, so there was a good number of Jewish believers. So Paul goes to the synagogue and reasons in the synagogue. Uh, some of those who were Jews were persuaded about Christ, and they joined Paul. Also, Paul goes out and he preaches in the public, and many of the devout Greeks and many of the leading women in the city were converted and joined Paul as well. We are all told all of that information in the first part of Acts chapter 17. However, the other Jews began to get uh, irritated and agitated with the Apostle Paul and uh, caused an uproar in the city and ran the Apostle Paul out of town. So you see, Paul goes to another city. Uh, Eventually, Paul will send Timothy back into Macedonia uh, for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging the Thessalonian believers. The occasion for this letter is, the occasion is Timothy had returned to Paul and Silas, and he had brought a report of how these new believers were doing. And it's in response to the report that Paul hears from Timothy when he sat down and wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. They had, he had a lot of good things to say about the Thessalonians, about their faith, how they were faithfully serving God, how they were enduring persecution. But then there was also some things that he was correcting about the Thessalonians. Uh, They had questions concerning uh, their loved ones and those who had died in connection with the coming of Christ. What is happening or what has happened or what will happen to our loved ones that have died? Uh, Also, they're facing times of tribulation and darkness, and Paul speaks of them about how to live in the midst of a dark world. Uh, But then there were some in Thessalonica that, for some reason, had stopped working. Uh, They they were not working anymore, Uh, and there's much speculation of why that happens. Uh, But he was addressing that issue as well in 1 Thessalonians. So we see on our paper the emphasis of the letter. Paul wanted to commend their faith and encourage them to continue in it. He wanted to answer slurs against his character, cast by his opponents. He intended to warn against immorality and laziness. Note the emphasis on Christ's coming. And chapter 4 of Thessalonians uh, is a very famous passage about Christ's coming, and we may talk more about that in a few minutes. Uh, Each chapter has a verse on the coming of Christ. Also in this letter is where the popular modern term rapture is taken from. Paul also wanted to exhort them in spite of bereavement and persecution in light of Christ's coming because they had lost loved ones. He wanted to encourage them to continue in holiness and godliness in a world of darkness. So he has concern for the believers there. He's answering their questions. He's encouraging in their walk. So a short letter. Uh, that is, you know, has a lot of affection to the letter. 
uh, even though we'll see some of that change a little bit as we get into 2 Thessalonians. So again, as, uh, on the overview of 1 Thessalonians, uh, the first half of the letter, the first three chapters, is about Paul's past, present, and future relationship with the new converts there. Uh, a couple of things about this section emerge. That's number one, his deep personal anxiety about their situation, uh, the persecution that they're enduring. His equally deep relief to learn that things are going basically well with them. Two things also emerge about Thessalonian believers, uh, that they continue to undergo suffering and persecution. And th- but they are basically hanging in there with regards to their faith in Christ. So even in the midst of persecution, they have not given up faith. However, there are some things that are lacking. Uh, the rest of the letter, chapters 4 and 5, take up matters that have been reported to him by Timothy. Most of them are reminders. Again, he's reminding them of things that they have already been taught. Um, These reminders about sexual immorality, mutual love, which includes working for one's own sustenance, and then the issue of the return of Christ. Uh, One altogether item is also included, namely what happens to believers who have died at the coming of Christ. Uh, Some specific advice for reading 1 Thessalonians Uh, Keep in mind that this letter is most likely one of the earliest Christian documents. To see how Paul deals with very new converts is part of the delight in reading. Note especially how Paul reminds them of things they already know. Uh, Given Timothy's report about their faith, it was essentially positive. And that on two matters, Paul says there is no need to write. Uh, So why write at all? Well, the answer is in 3, 9 through 10, where Paul thanks God that overall they're doing quite well but that there are also some deficiencies. Since he cannot come now, he sends a letter as his way of being present and supplying what is lacking in your faith. So there's really only just a couple of major issues that are dealt with here in the letter. Overall, it's a very friendly letter. Um, Paul's concerned about their suffering and their persecution. He's encouraged about their faith. He's answering their questions about their lost loved ones at the coming of Christ. How are they to live in days that look wicked and dark, and then just matters of encouragement. So that's basically the, the, the four or five issues that we see going on here in the letter to First Thessalonians. Uh, on the back of our paper, uh, very shortly after First Thessalonians, Paul writes Second Thessalonians, very shortly after that. Um, it seems that things, that the situation had kind of deteriorated, uh, that the suffering that the Thessalonians were going through had increased. It seems they went from having a question about their lost loved ones at the return of Christ to somebody forging a letter in Paul's name saying that the day of Christ had already happened and that they had missed it. And that caused a lot of confusion and concern because they didn't want to miss out on what God was doing. Uh, So Paul addresses that issue. And then it seems that the issue of there were those that were lazy and not working, that that is still a larger issue. And Paul is addressing that. Even today, for us, for us all here today. So even in 2 Thessalonians, uh, the content, a, a letter of further encouragement in the face of suffering, of warning against being misled regarding the coming of the Lord, and of exhortation uh, for some to work with their own hands and not to sponge off others. Uh, the author, again, is the Apostle Paul. The date is very shortly after 1 Thessalonians. Um, the occasion... As we stated, not long after writing 1 Thessalonians, Paul received news that the situation in Thessalonica had deteriorated. 
The emphasis in 2 Thessalonians is first, the persecution had intensified. Second, a report was circulating that the day of the Lord had already arrived, leading to confusion. Third, the problem of people giving up work had escalated further. So there's your three major issues of why Paul turns right around to write this letter of 2 Thessalonians. Paul wrote again addressing these matters. He stresses the importance of remaining steadfast and strong in the face of persecution. The Thessalonians were to remember what they were taught and were to live up to the standard implied by and inherent in God's call. They were to rejoice above all in the hope of sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ. So if you read this letter hard on the hills of 1 Thessalonians, you may notice that in general it lacks the overall warmth of feeling that you find in the first letter, and for good reason. Paul had learned someone in the church had been thrown, uh, is being thrown to confusion, declaring uh, in Paul's name that the day of the Lord had already happened. In response to this, Paul tells them to hold fast to what he himself had taught them by the word of his mouth, and that they need to remember that, and also what he taught them by letter, which was 1 Thessalonians. Second, he also had reason to be a bit miffed over those who are idle and disruptive. Uh, since he's already spoken to this issue in his first letter, he has to end up addressing it again. Together, these account both for the ambivalent tone and the specific content of the letter. Uh, the specific advice for reading 2 Thessalonians, um, that there are some difficult moments in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Um, Paul expects certain events to take place before the coming of Christ uh, in chapter 2. That's how he relates to them that they had not missed the day of the Lord because he gives them things that would happen leading up to it. Uh, but these scriptures are very difficult, and they have been hotly and contestly debated over what they mean, what was the timing of them. We'll get into more specifics uh, next week. Um, and the most difficulty stems from the fact that at two crucial places, being the identity of what Paul terms as the man of lawlessness, and then what is holding this man of lawlessness back. Those seem to be two of the major issues. The Thessalonians have previously been informed on these issues. So Paul does not repeat the teaching here. Although these questions are obviously matters of interest for us, uh, we will very likely have to be content to live with the main point of the passage since we are at living outside the loop on those matters. Basically, Paul says, you've been told what's going to happen before, so you already know these things, so I'm not going to tell you again. But we're sitting here wondering, well, what did you tell them before? Because uh, we don't have that information here with us today. Uh, so those matters are a little bit confusing, but Paul is straightening them out for things that they had already previously been taught. Um, secondly, there's plenty of speculation um, on the reason why the disruptive idleness continues uh, in the church of those refusing to work. The reason most commonly suggested is that they've quit working because they're expecting the soon coming of Jesus. Um, you know, if Jesus is coming soon at any moment, why do I need to work? I'll just wait for Jesus. I remember back in 1996, there was a prophecy preacher that he said, I am not going to file my taxes for the next year because I know Jesus is going to come back before tax time. Um, I hope he ended up filing his taxes. 
uh, that year. Because that was a long time ago. So, so, so that's the speculation that maybe people weren't working because they were expecting the imminent return. Because one thing is for sure, and we'll talk more about the details next week, is that there was an imminent expectation throughout all the New Testament of Christ's return, uh, both by the church, such as the Thessalonians, and by the writers of the New Testament as well. But nevertheless, we're trying to speculate on why they, people were being idle. Because they were being idle, they were being busybodies, and they were being disruptive. Uh, one reason could be they were waiting for the soon coming of the Lord. However, as is noted here, um, that hardly squares with what's being promoted in chapter 2-2. Uh, they had received word that the day of the Lord had already come. More likely, it's related to a general disdain of manual work on the part of Greek aristocracy, but nothing can be known for certain about why. Paul's concern is, and ours should be as well altogether with the what, both the exhortation to the disruptive idol to get to work and the instruction of the church on how to treat such people. So as you read in First and Second Thessalonians, which I would encourage you to do between now and next week, keep some of these main points in mind on First and Second Thessalonians. That's the quickest I've ever done an overview on a book. If, if you want to, go ahead. You might want to, because now is going to come the fun, confusing part. Okay. I, my goal is not to confuse anybody, so I'm going to try to go slow. That's why I went fast here. But I want to talk about end times and Bible prophecy. And I wanted to give a brief overview and I want us to give a brief overview because 1 Thessalonians is the first letter that we've come to deal with in our study that have very prominent, specific passages about Bible prophecy and the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord and the man of lawlessness and the restrainer, all of these words. This is the first time we've come across very prominent passages. Even though there's been mentions, it's not been the focus of the letters that we have read so far. So because of that, I wanted to give a brief look at what Bible prophecy is and then some of the various views that people hold and have held throughout church history on some of these issues concerning Bible prophecy. Well, first of all, let's give a definition uh, our definition here is Bible prophecy is foretelling, that's telling before, of future events. Bible prophecy is a foretelling of future events before they happen, often related to the second coming of Christ and the events that will happen at, quote, the end of the world. We're probably all familiar with Bible prophecy in one form or another. Um, there is the past, you know, 50 or so years, there's been the predominant view of Bible prophecy that I grew up with. And in my experience, and I think I've shared a little bit about my experience, but, you know, usually when you grow up in church, you're taught, you know, one thing in one way. Uh, so it was with me. It wasn't until much later on, you know, in my life, when I began to study that I began to realize that 
And it surprised me, and it surprises many Christians, and it surprises many Christians to learn that there are many different views of Bible prophecy. Uh, I had an inherent view that I was taught growing up, and then I learned that throughout church history, there had been many, many different views, and even today there are many different views of Bible prophecy and the end times issues. And depending on what view a person holds will determine how they read passages like we will read in 1 Thessalonians. So my goal today is to show us, again, I, I, I don't want to go into a lot of depth. I have taught this before uh, at Bible colleges and, and different things that it was like, you know, eight to ten weeks, so it can get very in-depth. But my goal is, first of all, to tell you, if you didn't know that there are and have been for the past 2,000 years many, many different views of Bible prophecy, well, there are, and there have been. Um, so my goal today is to look at six six major views of Bible prophecy in the end times. Because when you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, when you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, different people have a lot of different ideas. And it's because of the different thoughts they have about the end times. So, everyone in the boat so far, we understand Bible prophecy foretelling future events before they happen, mostly related to the coming of Christ and to the end of the world. And there have been and are many different views of Bible prophecy. We're going to look at six of them. Most end time views, and there's going to be some, okay, warning, there's going to be some technical language. All right, we're going to try to make it as simple as we can. I'm going to try to go as slow as I can. Because um, I've been in a very, when I, when I first started getting into the things of the Bible, Bible prophecy was the first thing that hooked me. And I started reading books. The first uh, book outside the Bible, Christian book that I ever read as a 18-year-old person was called, I think it was called Man of Sin by Grant Jeffrey, or I think it was Man of Sin by Grant Jeffrey. And I began a fascination, and my wife probably called it an obsession, uh, with Bible prophecy. And for the first many, many years that I was preaching, mostly I, I love to preach and teach on Bible prophecy. Throughout the years, because you know, I have learned other things and you know, been exposed, some of those views have been solidified. Some of those views have changed over the years. Some of them are still evolving. Um, I live by four rules right now when it comes to Bible prophecy. Here's the four rules. You don't have to write these down. But number one, don't be too dogmatic because none of us know what the future holds. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know we'll spend eternity with him. You know, that's, that's pretty short. But none of us know what the future holds. And while we all do our best to study the Bible and study Bible prophecy, sometimes it's hilarious to me that we're trying to figure out things that only God knows of exactly how things will work out, when things will work out, what they will look like. But I will promise you this, and I'll promise me this. However, all of this end time scenario and heaven and judgment and resurrection and second coming, or however all that works out, it will not be like we have thought it in our mind because we have a very finite mind and there's an infinite God. So my, first, my personal first principle is don't be too dogmatic. None of us know what the future holds. Uh, secondly, it's I'm not going to fight over 
matters of end times because to me, those are not matters of salvation. They're interesting things to talk about. They're interesting views to look at, but I'm not going to break fellowship with someone if they believe something different than me about how the end of the world is going to play out. So I'm not going to fight and because it's not an issue of salvation. Number three, I don't want to nail things down so tight that one day I can't pull them back up if my mind changes. There are some guys today that have made their whole living off Bible prophecy, and if they ended up believing anything different, they couldn't go back and fix it because they've already nailed it down so tight. So personally, my personal rule, don't nail things down so tight, you can't pull it back up. Number three, it's okay to admit that you have grown in your understanding. It's okay. There have been some things that I've taught in the past that I would not teach them today the way I taught them then because I have a different understanding. Um, I wasn't trying to mislead people or it's just in a, a growth process. Um, and then when it comes to Bible prophecy, be humble because in the end we might all be wrong. Uh, so, you know, all these views today, they might all end up being wrong or parts of them might all end up being wrong. Um, so that's my personal humility, a willingness to learn, a willingness to listen, a willingness to listen to all sides, a willingness to search the scripture. Um, so with that being said, I want to give us six views. Now, some of these, you may know them all. Some of them may be the first time you've ever heard or seen any of these words. Uh, and so we're going to try to, and I do have something to pass out, but I didn't want to pass out early because y'all be looking at it and not, not talking to me. So here's our first statement. Views of the end times. Most end time views of the second coming of Christ are put in terms of what we call the millennium. Has anybody ever heard that term, the millennium? What is a, not, not, don't, 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 don't give me the biblical definition, but what is a millennium? A thousand, a millennium is a thousand. Millennium is a thousand years, one thousand, one thousand years. So when we speak of the millennium, we're speaking of a one thousand year period. Now, where do we find a one thousand year period in Scripture? Well, the idea of the millennium comes from Revelation chapter 20. We're not going to read it. You can go read it on your own time. But it comes from the idea of Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years. Quote, a thousand years. That's where we get the term millennium. You won't find the word millennium or millennial reign. You won't find that term in the Bible. That's a term we put to it. That means a thousand years. So Satan is bound in Revelation 24,000 years and those who had authority to judge, and those who were beheaded and did not worship the beast, ruled and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So that's where we get the term millennium. And four out of the six views that I will show you today come out of the idea of the millennium. That's how many of these views have been defined. So we have this thousand years, and because there's a lot of confusion about end-time prophecy. And I can understand why, why you know, Paul writes 2 Thessalonians because he's trying to clear up confusion because there's a lot of confusion uh, when it comes to Bible prophecy because, again, we don't know the end, uh, so we're just doing the best that we can trying to properly interpret the Word of God. A lot of confusion comes, especially with the millennium, because we're trying to create major doctrines based upon the most mysterious and the most symbolic 
book ever written. Um, that's the book of Revelation. And that's why there's so much confusion. We have to try to decide what is literal in the book of Revelation or what is symbolic. You know, when it talks about, you know, a seven-headed beast with ten horns rising up out of the water, that's probably not literal, okay? That's probably a picture. Revelation is actually a series of visions that there are. And according to Revelation 1, it's communicated in symbols. It's communicated in symbols and signs. So there's a lot of things that, and there's, there are some things, and that's why it's so difficult to interpret Revelation, because there are people that interpret one verse literal and two verses later interpret it spiritual or symbolically. So there's a lot of confusion because it is the most mysterious and the most symbolic book in the Bible. What is literal? What is symbolic? What is chronological? There's people that believe Revelation is written in chronological order. People that believe it's not written like this, but it's written like this. And it speaks about the same thing in different ways over and over again. So how is it laid out? Is it chronological? Is it not? Where are these ideas supported in other scriptures? So you can see that there's a lot of mystery behind a thousand years. So when it says a thousand years, do we take that literal symbolic? Well, many people would say, well, obviously you take it literal because it says a thousand years. Well, the Bible also says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, we know there's more than a thousand hills in the world, right? Does that mean God only owns the cattle on a thousand of those hills and not a thousand of one? That's not what that scripture is saying. That number thousand is used for symbolic or infinite. So people read that and then they try and say, well, this doesn't have to be literal. If a thousand heals is not literal, this doesn't. So that's where the confusion comes in and that's why we get many of these different views. So out of all of these questions, is it literal? Is it symbolic? Is it chronological? Where is it at in other scriptures? Out of all these questions about the most mysterious and the most symbolic book, comes several beliefs. And here's a list. Now, we're going to read the list and then I'm going to pass out the paper. The first four here you see by the wording are directly connected to the millennial. The last two do not have millennial in there. They're not directly connected. But the first four here, we have the word a-millennial, post-millennial, historic pre-millennial, dispensational pre-millennial. Now we're going to look at all these separate in just a minute. So those are your four that's directly connected to the coming of Christ in relation to this 1,000 year period. Ah, millennial. Ah is, a, ah is a prefix that means none. Post is a prefix that means after. Pre is a prefix that means before. So there's an a-millennial, a post-millennial, and then there's two pre-millennials. And then the last two are what we call preterist. Now, preterist, pre, means past. So these have to do with something that happened in the past. So there is a partial preterist and a full preterist. Okay, so now I'm going to pass out these papers. Is anybody totally confused yet, or am I try I'm trying hard? If you're, if you're confused now, you may want to take that early lunch, and it'd be okay with me. It'd be okay with me. No, because we're not going to get all. We're not going to get all in all this next week. 
All right, we're going to be on this paper that has all the words on it. On the back of this is a chart. We're not going to look at the chart here, okay? That's just for later. We're going to look at this front paper with all the words on it. So who did not know that there were at least six views of the end time? It's okay. Anybody did not know there are these? Okay, that's a bunch of them. Like, great, because I didn't either. I didn't either. And my go- my, again, my goal is not to confuse anybody. You can leave here today, and I would almost encourage, leave here today and forget I ever said any of this, okay? Because <laughs> my goal is not to confuse. My goal is not to change anybody's beliefs. My goal is just to inform, uh, just to inform. Um, so let's look on the screen first. Everybody, everybody have a paper? Okay. Let's look on the screen first. All right, the first one we're going to look at, views of the end times. Out of all these questions about Revelation 20, comes various views. The first one is ah, millennial. Now, ah is a prefix that means no millennial. No millennial. So that means ah, millennialist believe. And a lot of amillennialists are more in the academic world. There's a lot of amillennialists. They read the book of Revelation in what is called an idealistic way. That means they don't really connect it with events in the past or events in the future. They read Revelation as symbolic and spiritual, as spiritual messages that can relate to anybody at any time. So all millennial do not see a literal earthly 1,000-year period called the millennial. They see this thing we call the millennial as a spiritual rule of Christ. Now, we know that Christ is in heaven right now, right at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning on the throne. Well, he has a spiritual reign over our life. He is the head. He is the king. He's no less king today than he will be in the future. So Jesus is ruling and reigning over his people today, but he's not ruling and reigning here on the earth. He's ruling and reigning in heaven. Well, the amillennialists see that this millennial time is not a literal 1,000 years. It represents the whole church age where Christ rules and reigns from heaven in the life of the believers. Life of the believers. All right, now let's look on our paper and let's read our paragraph here. Amillennialism is the name given to the belief that there will not be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. So they interpret the 1,000 years kind of like God owns the cattle on a 1,000 hills. It's symbolic. In amillennialism, the millennium is the spiritual reign of Jesus in the hearts of his followers. Amillennialism teaches that from the ascension of Christ until the second coming, they do not believe in what we would call a preacher rapture or anything. We'll talk about that later. That from Christ's ascension to his second coming, both good and evil will be in the world and God's kingdom is parallel in this world to Satan's kingdom. Basically, we can see out in the world, we can see Satan's kingdom, right? We can, see, we can see all the evil in the world. Well, just as we can see all the evil in the world, we also see that God is working in the world through his Christians, through the Holy Spirit. So in the world, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom is going parallel. When Jesus returns, he will culminate history with a general resurrection a general judgment for all people is essentially a spiritualization of the kingdom prophecies. 
Amillennialism became popular in the 5th century and has remained widespread throughout church history. So basically what amillennialism is, they do not believe that Christ returns and then sets up a kingdom on the earth. They believe the kingdom is in operation now, parallel with what's going on in the world. And then one day at the end of history, Christ will return and there will be a general resurrection and judgment and the eternal state. But they do not believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. Ah, millennialism. The second one, all right, let's look up on the screen here. The second one is called post-millennial, post-millennial. Post is a prefix meaning after. So post-millennialism means that there will that Christ will return after this time that we call the millennium. Now, post-millennialism, they don't believe in a literal 1,000 years as well. They spiritualize that as well. What post-millennialism believes is that through the preaching of the gospel, that the world will not get worse. And This is going to sound funny, but I'm going to give you some history on it in a minute. They believe the world will not get worse and worse. That because of the preaching of the gospel, now there'll be good times and bad times, but through the preaching of the gospel and through the evangelizing of the nations, the world will get better and better because more and more people will receive the gospel. And they believe that through the preaching of the gospel and through the work of the church, there will come what is called a golden age where peace will reign, where people will be submitted to Christ, where we won't see all the, the wars that we see. Now, I know that looks crazy in, in, in our context today. And then at, at the end of this golden age called the millennium, Christ will return to receive the kingdom to himself. Now, before you say, well, that's absolutely crazy. Nobody would ever believe that. Many of the people that formed our nation were post-millennialist. They believed that, they, that the gospel would be spread and the kingdom would come through the preaching of the gospel, through Christians setting and being involved in government, through Christians creating health care systems, Christians creating welfare systems, Christians being involved in education. So up until the time of the First World War, things seemed to be getting better in the world. You know, all of our first, Christ, all our first universities in America were began by Christians because they believed it was their job to impact education. That's how the kingdom would come. Many of the first hospitals in America were started by Christians because they believe that one way to bring the kingdom is for Christians to be involved in caring for people and health. So you have the preaching through government. You know, our country was founded on, on certain principles of the Bible opposed from other nations. Why? Because they believe that's how the kingdom would come to the world. And through the preaching of the gospel, through Christians being involved in government and health care and education, that things would get better and better. And guess what? They did for a while. That's why America had the Christian influence that it did. They believed that they were post-millennial. Now, why I may not be a post-millennialist, I, mean, I, I don't agree, I do like their premise of Christians being involved with the world trying to make it better. It's better than Christians hiding in a corner, letting everything get worse, hoping Jesus comes back soon. So I, I may not believe that there's going to be a golden age and the world's going to be, you know, peaceful bliss and Jesus returns. I do like the idea that they had behind post-millennial, that Christians are to affect the world and through the gospel, the world will become better. 
Well, as you can imagine, with the First World War and the Second World War, uh, these views kind of changed a little bit because it didn't seem things were getting better. It seemed that things were now getting worse. So you will not find that there are still some out there, some prominent people that are post-millennial, but you don't find as much today because they say, well, the world isn't getting better. The world is getting worse. And I, I, you get to a lot of discussions. I would ask, why would the world be getting worse? Could it be because we let secular uh, ideas run through our government? Because we let secularism impact our universities and our schools and our health care and all of this? So, you know, but that is, but post-millennial believes that at the end of the millennium, after a golden age of peace through the preaching of the gospel, Christ would return. Um, I think I've said everything there is to say in the paragraph there, so uh, we'll go on to the next one, all right? So post-millennial. The next one is, if you look on our screens, is pre-millennial. Now, pre means before. So this is more of what I would call for us today, probably all of us, were exposed and grew up with premillennialism. Premillennialism means Christ will return to the earth, and when he returns, he will set up his physical kingdom on the earth, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. So pre means before the millennium. Now, premillennialism differs from the other ones because they believe in a literal 1,000-year period of Christ's rule on the earth. Not from heaven, but Christ will return and rule on the earth. Now, there are two forms of premillennialism. One is called historic, because it's more ancient and historic. The other is called dispensational. If you grew up in a mainline church or a Baptist church, you probably, like me, grew up under what is called dispensational. You may have not known that's what you were, what, that's what your belief was. You probably didn't. And that's okay, but that's what it is. So let's look on our paper, and we're going to read the difference between the two. We'll start with historic, because it's more historic. This view believes that Christ will return before a literal future 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. Before this millennium, Christians will remain on the earth during the Great Tribulation. So historic premillennialism taught that there will come a time of great tribulation on the earth and that the church would go through the great tribulation. Now, usually when we talk in our context from dispensational, we believe that it will be a, or dispensationalism believes it will be a seven-year tribulation. Post, uh, historic didn't believe it was seven years, but they did believe there would be a time of great tribulation where Christians would be persecuted, uh, an Antichrist figure would come up on the scene, and the Christians will go through a time of great tribulation. So historic believes that Christians will remain on earth during the great tribulation. However, they do not view the great tribulation as a seven-year fulfillment of the Daniel 9 prophecy. Now, I put that in there without giving any explanation. But if you've ever heard of a seven-year tribulation period, you heard it because of a prophecy from Daniel. Now, Daniel is the only place in the Bible where you find a seven-year period that you can put a tribulation period in. There is much, much, much debate over Daniel 9. In fact, how you interpret Daniel 9 will determine where you fall on the scale of all these isms and ists and everything else on the screen. 
Um, but Daniel 9 is where people get the idea of a seven-year tribulation. Well, historic premillennialism didn't believe that, but they did believe there would be a time of great tribulation. Uh, they believe the tribulation will purify the churches by rooting out false believers, and the second coming of Christ will precede a 1,000-year millennium. Historical premillennialism. Now, this is the interesting part. Historical premillennialism seems to have been the earliest view of the end times among Christians who lived after the apostles. This view was the predominant view of the church from the second century to the rise of dispensational premillennialism in the late 1800s. So while we would today talk about a rapture, you know, before a tribulation, that was not taught in the church for the majority of the church. Most people don't know that. In fact, I had a very, my very own family member of mine. We were, we were together at, at my parents' house, and he came up to me and he said, you know, I met a pastor the other day that said he didn't believe in a rapture. He said, I can't believe that. I mean, he said, it's right there in the Bible. And I looked at my, I looked at my family member, and I said, did you know that for, you know, 15, 1,600 years of the church, nobody else did either? And he's like, huh? I was like, nice talking to you. And then I left. I like to leave people hanging. But that's true. For the majority of the church, the church believed there would come a great, a great tribulation. The church would go through it, and Christ would return at the end. And that was the predominant view for most. Even though these other views were there, that was the predominant view of your early church fathers going on until the mid to late 1800s. What happened in the mid to late 1800s to change that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that is where... That's where dispensational came in. So let's read dispensational. Now, what they have in common is they still believe Jesus will return to earth before the millennium. So Christ will return to earth and set up his kingdom. Both of those premillennialism believe that. Historic believes that there will be a time of tribulation. And the church will go through it. Dispensationalism differs. I may call it dispensationalism because um, that's just shorter. But dispensational premillennialism on your paper differs from historic because it sees the coming of Christ in two separate stages. In historic, you have Christ coming one time at the end of history to set up his kingdom. Dispensationalism comes along and now begins to see the scripture differently. And it sees the coming of Christ in two separate stages. So that's why I said, depending on your view, will depend on how you read 1 Thessalonians. For the majority of history, the church read 1 Thessalonians 4 as the one second coming of Christ at the end of history to set up his kingdom. Since if you're a dispensationalist, you will read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as the rapture of the church, separate from a later second coming of Christ. So dispensational sees the coming of Christ in two separate stages. A rapture of the church before a seven-year tribulation period, which does fulfill Daniel 9's prophecy, and then the second coming at the end of the great tribulation. Then Christ will set up his kingdom. Another thing that separates dispensational from historic is the next sentence. In addition, 
God will fulfill Old Testament promises to Israel. The rapture is understood as the event when Christ removes Christians from the earth before the Great Tribulation begins so that God can work through the nation of Israel again. Again, that's another thing people don't know. People think they'll be raptured before the tribulation just so they'll escape the bad stuff that's coming. That's not the reason why. The reason why there's a rapture according to dispensationalism is because God had a nation called Israel. They rejected him at the cross. They put him on the cross. They rejected him. Therefore, God set Israel aside. And now they say works through the church. Well, God in the Old Testament made eternal promises to Israel, they say. And God has to fulfill those promises, they say. So there will come a time, the only way to do that, is for God to rapture the church off the earth and take them to heaven. And then God will begin again working through Israel. Now, I can give you a guess when this view became really, really popular. 1948, when Israel was recognized as a nation again. That's when dispensationalism says, aha, there's our proof. Israel's a nation again. God is working. The prophecy clock has now started back ticking, they would say. And, of course, then, then you led into, well, Jesus said, when you see the fig tree, within 40 years, I'll come back. Well, then 1988 should have been the rapture, and then 89, and then, you know, then we enter into what I call prophetic speculation not prophetic interpretation. But that's where dispensationalism really took off because a lot of their, the heart of their message is that God will one day rapture the church to work through Israel again. Therefore, they'll rebuild a temple because there has to be a temple for the Antichrist to come into and sit down and Christ will rule and reign from Israel in a temple in Jerusalem when he comes back and all of this. So that's, that's not in historic premillennialism. Historic didn't see any of that happening. But in dispensationalism, it did. So what changed? Well, this view emerged in the 1800s among the group called the Plymouth Brethren, a group of fundamentalist Bible churches founded around the 1820s, uh, specifically by a man named John Darby. I didn't put that in there, but John Darby. John Darby was the first to come up with what we call the system of dispensationalism, seeing the two-stage, seeing all of this play out. Um, there's a lot of origins I could go into of where he got that from, but we don't have time for that. But John Darby is seen as the father of dispensationalism. And he started teaching that in England among the Plymouth Brethren and all of that. Then it came over to America and people started hearing about it. A man by the name of C.I. Schofield heard Darby's teachings. Now, many of you, my first real Bible was a Schofield reference Bible. In the early 1900s, Schofield Reference Bible was the Bible. Everybody had it. Well, the thing about Schofield is he had a whole bunch of notes in there about every chapter and book. Well, he took his notes on the end times from John Nelson Darby. And so once it got put in the C.I. Schofield Bible, that's when it became so popular. And it was adopted in America as a predominant view. Uh, and then a guy named Larkin came along and drew the big charts with, with all the confusing stuff on it and all of that. And that's how dispensationalism became, it increased in popularity, and is now in America, and in many places, the predominant and popular view. So if you turn on basically any television, 
Uh, you know, names that I grew up on, you know, like Hal Lindsey and Jack Van Impey and Barry Stone and uh, John Hagee and, you, and the list goes on and on. If you turn on television, you're going to hear dispensationalism. It's become the popular primary view uh, of our modern time. It was not always that way, but it is in our modern time. So those are our four major millennial views. Amillennial, post-historic, dispensational. If you give me five more minutes, we'll go finish the rest. The final two. Now, they don't have the word millennial in them, and they differ somewhat, even though some of these parallel. These are called preterists. Now, the word preterist we saw here, the word preterist comes from a Latin word, which means past. So preterism basically has, sees a past fulfillment. Preterism sees, just like premillennialism, there's two different ideas of preterism partial preterism, and full preterism. What are these about? Let's look on our paper at partial preterism. This view, whereas especially premillennialism and your others, where your other views, here's the major difference, where your other views see the majority of Bible prophecy as speaking of things that would come to happen in our future, Preterism sees many of those prophecies as have already been fulfilled in the past. They see a first century fulfillment of many, not all, but many of the passages that others look at as way in the future. So partial preterism. This view sees many of the Bible's prophecies as having already been fulfilled in the first century while still holding to a future return of Christ. That's partial preterism. So they believe that some prophecy texts were fulfilled in the past, but there are still some to be fulfilled in the future. Prophecies already fulfilled include Daniel 9, Matthew 24, and much of the book of Revelation, with the exception, with the exception of the final few chapters. According to partial preterists, the Bible's references to the last days are speaking of the last days of the Old Covenant age. And passages describing the Great Tribulation or wrath to come are referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. So they see a lot of those passages as not speaking of something that was way in the future, but something that was in the future to those in the Bible, but would soon take place. Um, The coming of Christ is seen as a coming in judgment on Jerusalem. Partial preterists, while holding to a judgment coming of Christ, do believe in a future literal return of Christ to the earth. And they believe in a general resurrection and a final judgment. But they take prophecies like Daniel 9, whereas dispensationalism would stretch the prophecy of Daniel 9 2,000 years into the future. Preterists say it was all fulfilled in the past. Now, amillennialism, post-historic, they believe that as well. Partial preterism would see Matthew 24, not as speaking of something that would happen at the end of time, but something that would happen at the end of the Old Covenant age in the Jewish temple. Why do they believe that? They believe that because Jesus gave signs in Matthew 24, and then he said this statement. All these things must come upon this generation. Jesus said things like, there are those standing here 
that will not see death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, unless there's some really 2,000-year-old people walking around, all of those people that Jesus spoke to saw death. Jesus said he sent his disciples out and he said things like, you will not have finished going through all the towns of Israel until the Son of Man returns. So there's a lot of statements that Jesus made with the fact that every New Testament writer believed the coming of Christ was very soon and imminent. So here's the question that the preterists would ask. Were they all wrong? C.S. Lewis, I think it was C.S. Lewis, said that Christ's prediction that he would come back in the lifetime of the believers is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible because he promised he would come back in the life of his disciples and that generation, and he did not. Therefore, it's the most embarrassing verse. Well, preterists would say it's not the most embarrassing verse because Jesus did return just as he said. It was just not in the way it was expected that he came on the clouds in judgment. Does preterism have any leg to stand on? Well, they do. In the Old Testament, when judgment was poured out upon nations, it was described as God would come, uh, one in Isaiah, that God came down to Bozrah in the clouds and he came to Egypt. And so there are wordings uh, in the Old Testament as seen of God coming and coming on the clouds but he didn't come physically. So preterism comes out of that thought that when Jesus said things would happen soon, they would happen to this generation, he meant it. And so partial, part of those were fulfilled, but yet partial preterism still sees a future coming of, the, of Christ, a future resurrection and final judgment. Then you have full preterism. Now full preterism uh, differs from partial because they see all all Bible prophecy, including the second coming, the judgment, and the resurrection, is already being fulfilled in a spiritual nature. They said these things were not literal, they were spiritual. Um, therefore, because of that, full preterism precludes a physical second coming of Christ. While partial preterism has been adopted by many people, including amillennialists and postmillennialists, full preterism has mostly been rejected because the creeds of the church had always affirmed that Jesus Christ would come back physically, bodily, and literally. So you can see why there is confusion over Bible prophecies, because the church has never agreed on anything. It's progressed over years. There's been different views. There's been views that were popular at more times uh, than others. And there's where a lot of confusion comes in. So again, depending on what view you lean toward will depend upon how you interpret passages like 1 Thessalonians. And, and I really debated doing this because I know it's a lot, and I know, you know there, some of you may have never heard any of this. You may be like, this is just so confusing. But if I allude to when we get next week in the 1 Thessalonians 4, and I say, well, you know, some look at it this way, some look at it that way, there will be some type of a foundation. 